If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I will read verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. So we're in the middle of a multi-week study on the gospel. And I try to relate every time the rationale behind that. Part of it is personal. Part of it is for us as a church. But primarily, it's because of God. In the gospel, God is most magnified and glorified. So as we focus on the gospel, if we take a moment to pause and consider the gospel, we can set aside everything else that counts as distraction or less than ideal in our lives or something even that's good that we've distorted and focus on God because God is most revealed and most clearly revealed in the gospel. And many of us, I believe, we get into the rut of believing that the gospel is something that We have down pat if we are saved and that we then progress to other things in our lives. That is not the case. Hopefully, as we've discussed the gospel in these weeks leading up to this, you've begun to see that the gospel is what God uses to transform and change us even unto glory. It's not one day in your life where the gospel was the most important thing. It must be every day in your life as a believer where the gospel is the most important thing. And so it's appropriate to ask this question, how are we doing with this? In the weeks that we've spent focusing on the gospel, how are we doing? I have such confidence in the gospel that if if nothing is happening in your heart, if nothing is changing, if, there, if there's not at least some realignment, even if you're a very mature believer, if you would, in, even in humility, consider yourself a very mature believer, if nothing is happening, if there's nothing changing, if it is not producing joy in your heart, if it has not promoted unity and a desire for discipleship, then... I think you need to begin to ask yourself some serious questions. Either I'm a terrible preacher or maybe you're not listening or perhaps you need to come face to face with the Lord who gave us the gospel. Has it stirred your affections for the Lord as we've considered the glorious gospel? Has anything budged in your heart? Anything moved deep down? Any change in your life? Or is it all the same? Is there any excitement at all in your heart about the gospel? Or is it about other things that are happening in your life? This is Paul's appeal in Philippians. He says to his 
uh, the church there. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So the, the immediate result of coming to understand how much you have benefited from the gospel is unity and love for one another. So is that happening? This is how much confidence I have in the gospel, that if 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 we are focusing on the true gospel, that those things will begin to take place or it will become clear that we are not in Christ. I would have to just chuck out the whole Bible if that were not true. Because none of it would make sense. Today, we have a very simple, um, but at the same time, almost impossible task. We're going to try to answer this question. What is salvation? And why do we need it? What is salvation and why do we need it? It's simple enough, but it's an Everest-like task for us. There are a few reasons for that, but I want you to just hold tight and set aside all distractions possible that you can, whether in your mind, in your heart, or outside this room. Just set them aside. And I want us to together behold this great diamond of salvation. We're going to try to look at as many facets as we can in the time that we have. There's no way we're going to see it all, but hopefully the way that I'm going to speak will at least give you some sense of the glorious salvation of God. The first thing we need to do is answer this question, or at least distinguish between the gospel and salvation. The gospel and salvation are not necessarily the same. And many of us, I think, might have those Uh, conflated in our minds that the gospel is salvation, salvation is the gospel, they all mean the same thing. That's not exactly correct. The gospel is, in a sense, the means by which God saves us. The good news that God has done something that he was not obligated to do to save those whom he did not have to save. The gospel is the way God chose to save. Does that make sense? It's the difference between the means by which someone does something and the end goal or the beginning. Salvation is the beginning and the end goal. The gospel is how God accomplishes all of it for those who repent and believe. The gospel is, in a sense, the concentration of all God's saving power. All of that is found in the gospel. And in all of our lives, we have things where we distinguish between uh, means and end or or, uh, how you get there and what you're getting to. Consider um, a life saving antidote okay, or or a cure for a particular disease. If you were to receive that antidote, you would get healthy, right? If, If it works and it's the antidote that Uh, it purports to be, then it would work and you'd be healed and you wouldn't have, let's say, the coronavirus anymore, right? It's a hot topic right now. But the goal isn't the antidote. The goal is health, wholeness, not dying, right? 
Getting rid of the virus in your body. The antidote is how you get there. But you can't get there without the antidote. So it's the relationship of means and goal, or means and end. In the same way that, it, let's say you're charged of a crime, or you're even in jail because you've committed a crime and you're guilty, and then you receive a pardon. The pardon isn't freedom, it's to get you to freedom. This is the relationship between salvation and the gospel. The gospel is what God uses to bring salvation. But the gospel isn't the end goal. And so it's important that we focus all of this attention on the gospel because it is what God used to save us in our past, present, and future. But the gospel isn't just understanding the facts of the gospel. That's not the goal. The goal is what the gospel brings. So consider it this way. Salvation is this massive bundle, if you will. Just envision in your mind this massive bundle of all of these blessings ranging from regeneration to the indwelling of the Spirit, adoption, glorification, all the ones that you could list. If you know anything about your Bible, you could begin listing dozens more of the blessings of salvation. So that's that big bucket term, salvation, to bundle all that God does in Christ by the Spirit to create a people for God forever. The Gospel is very specific. Specifically, the narrow sense in which the Bible uses it, consider it like this it's the gate. And if you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know what I'm talking about. There's a gate by which Christian must enter the path to the celestial city. And that little gate is, in its imagery, the gospel. And if you don't enter by that gate, you won't make it to the celestial city. So there's tons of blessings, tons of uh, good and great things that God is doing for those that he is saving, but it all must be through that gate, the gospel. So that's the relationship between the two. Second, the gospel is exclusive in bringing salvation. The gospel is exclusive in bringing salvation. God brings salvation through the gospel alone. This is very important. You can see this in the text. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And yes, the original text can make a distinction if it wants to, if it's just a way that God uses to save people. Paul could have said that. But it's not. This is the power of God for salvation. It is the gospel alone, echoed in the words of Peter that we've talked about before. There is no name. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's in Christ alone. It is in leaving the gospel. So the way, in a sense, has been narrowed. But at the same time, it's been widened. It's not just for Jews anymore. Or to be one of the people of God, you don't have to essentially become a Jew. But at the same time, it's not a general hope in God in the future that he would provide a Messiah. It is that he has, in fact, provided a Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus. So it's only in this gospel that God brings salvation. There is no other way that God saves, period. But what a glorious way it is. What a magnificent way it is. And it has been sounded forth to all the corners 
of the world. And yes, there is still so much work to be done. But there is no message in human history that has reached more ears than the gospel. The other side of the coin is the gospel brings salvation. The gospel brings salvation, not all the other things that we might want. Many of us want a ton of other things out of our Christian walk, perhaps. You want riches? That's not what the gospel brings. At least not yet. The gospel brings salvation. And because of that, often poverty. Our riches are for the hereafter. You want acceptance with people and to be well-liked? That's not what the gospel brings. The gospel brings salvation. And because of that, we often will be in conflict with others, for not all have faith. Our hope is set on the family of God being fully revealed one day. You want health and well-being? That's not what the gospel brings. The gospel brings salvation. And because of that, often our outer self will waste away. Our hope is set on the Lord raising, redeeming, and glorifying our bodies one day. You want peace and happiness all the time? I mean, just look at the saints of old. Paul himself. The gospel brings salvation, and that is meant to be the rock-solid foundation of our lives that births into all these other things, but in a slightly different way, a way that the world doesn't understand. We could go on and on. The gospel brings salvation. Number three, the gospel connects us to all the blessings of salvation. This is very important. The gospel connects us to all. All the blessings of salvation, not just one. Not just like salvation in the sense of forgiveness or justification. The gospel connects us to all of them. Here's just a few that I've, I didn't go to any dictionary because we'd have been here for a long time. This is just what came to mind when writing this. The redeeming love of God. The delight of God. Acceptance with God, peace with God, reconciliation with God, an inheritance with the saints in light, being granted to sit on the throne of Christ and rule with him forever, justification, forgiveness, absolution from sins, glorification, adoption, resurrection to life, the ability and strength and desire to know and love God forever, redeemed desires. Redeemed personality and individuality. The indwelling spirit, reconciliation with each other, a new family, a brotherhood, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ. And we could just go on and on and on. All of those blessings, but I'm just phrasing this, all the blessings of salvation, all of those come through the gospel alone. And the gospel brings all of them. It's not like if once you're a Christian, you've got to go through a different way or put the puzzle pieces of this mysterious faith together so that you can receive those. It's always and only through the gospel that all of those come. And if you have the gospel, if you're trusting in Christ through the gospel, then all of those are yours. Number four. The gospel, therefore, is not only the entry point to salvation. 
the gate, but it's also how we are saved past, present, and future. You don't begin by the gospel and finish your life out on the basis of something else. This is what Paul, how Paul rebukes the Galatians. Having begun by grace, are you now being perfected by works? It doesn't work that way. It's always and only through the gospel that he works this great work of salvation. So, what is salvation? How would we speak of such a great thing? In the minutes we have left, how can we ever summarize something so grand and glorious with, with truths so mind-boggling that to even mention them is to stun the imagination? Just as an example, eternal life. That 10 billion years from now, you will exist. And not only exist, you will be more yourself than you ever have been as you come to more appreciate and wonder at and delight in the joy and glory of God. 10 trillion years from now, you will exist. We, we can't. You just can't hold that in your mind. Just to say them is to stun the mind. So how are we to speak of salvation? First, we'll begin by asking the question, what is salvation not? Let's clarify it versus some of the misconceptions or wrong ideas that are out there about salvation. Salvation is not merely in the sense of a ticket to heaven or hell insurance. It's not even getting your life together necessarily. You've, you've often heard this. Maybe you've said this. We look at a person whose life is just a mess, just a disaster, or maybe they're really rude to us or mean, and we say something like, you need Jesus. Right? Like that that is what salvation is. That, that what salvation looks like is your life essentially getting better. And even though, like, I understand what we mean when we say that, like, obviously everyone needs Jesus, right? And so a person who's bitter and, and angry and their life is a mess, obviously they need the Lord. But it's not, the, the idea is not that you get Jesus and then somehow everything instantly gets better in the way that you might want. Things, in many ways, might get worse. Following Christ may actually make your life look less well put together at times in the world's eyes. Think of Paul. I mean, it was a big deal for a church not to be ashamed of Paul because he had to walk around with a chain for a while and he was in prison often. Salvation also is not merely the idea of avoiding hell. It's very important. And additionally, this is, uh, this is kind of the one I want to spend the most time on. Salvation is not merely any one of the blessings of salvation singled out. So um, I, I'll phrase this carefully. I used to be a picky eater. Uh, Beth would maybe disagree with my phrasing of that. I used to be a picky eater. There were many things that I didn't like no matter how they were prepared. Now, now maybe I'm still a picky eater, but for me, it's just preparation. As long as you prepare it right, it's not that I have an issue with eggplant. You just got to prepare it right, and it'll be fine. Um, so if you're at a meal, let's say your parents make for you a meal. Like Those of you all who are still living at home, you understand this. There's a really nice meal. And let's say you really, really like the meat and how it's prepared. But you won't eat any of the rest of it. You won't even look at it. You won't even taste it. And there's, there's maybe 
16 different dishes and things that have been put together for this feast. And, and you, you really like one and you'll just eat a ton of that, but you're not going to consider the rest of it. This is often what we do with salvation. We focus on our favorite, perhaps, or the most emotionally significant aspect of salvation for us. And we get a lot of that. We focus a lot on that, but we won't appreciate the feast. We won't even taste it. We won't even consider it. And may, maybe they'll come into our minds occasionally as we read through the Bible. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. But this one, really, this is the heart of it. Salvation is a grand feast. And there are hundreds of different side dishes and main courses even. So you can't, salvation is not just singling out forgiveness. It's so much more than that. Let's run an example just with that one, with forgiveness. If we, if we talk about salvation as only being forgiveness, what begins to happen? Well, there's at least three things that happen. If salvation is emphasized as just forgiveness of my sin, then that's an individual perspective, which is true. It's absolutely true. But if you begin to focus on that exclusively, then you leave out all of the group aspects of salvation, creating a family of God, reconciling you with your brother and sister in Christ, exhorting one another every day, all of these things. Running along with forgiveness again, not that, not, and I'm in no way saying that we should not focus on forgiveness. That's, in, in a sense, one of the beating hearts of this great thing that we call salvation. But just if you focus on it alone, here's what can happen. Okay, I've been forgiven. So now what? I'm forgiven. I'm always forgiven when I'm justified. God forgives my sin, past, present, and future. So what now? You just leave out all the other grand and glorious aspects of salvation that it is work, He is working by His Spirit in your life today for salvation. Paul uses the phrase being saved. Justification is, in fact, a, at a single point in time. I believe that. But it is just one point in the long chain of salvation and all He is doing to save you. And if the emphasis becomes focusing on that one event in your life, that one day when everything changed for you, then you always get in this habit of looking back and making significant all that was going on in your heart at that time and not looking to Christ today and treasuring what he might be doing in your heart today. And tomorrow. And so our, our focus becomes, how was I feeling? What was I thinking? What was going on? Who talked to me back then at that day instead of looking to Christ, your glorious Savior, today? In His sufficiency, in His glory. Second, after we've talked about what, what salvation is not, when we say that term, what it is not, let's talk about what it is. Salvation is of God. You can see this in the text. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Salvation is of God. He's the source of salvation. It is from Him. This is from the Revelation to John, chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, some of the most moving verses in all the Bible. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And essentially everything else that we're going to say for the rest of our time here this morning is essentially an implication of that. Salvation is of God. That God is the source of salvation Just consider that text that for all eternity, the basis of our praise to God and the basis of the cherubim and seraphim's praise to God and the basis of the elders praise of God is that to him belongs salvation. It's stunning. And here are a few ways for you to think about salvation being from God. The first is this. We are saved from God. This may strike you as odd to say, but it's right in the text. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The reason sin is bad, the power of sin is the law of God. We are saved from God. There's nothing like this in all the rest of human experience. That our Savior is the one whom ultimately we are being saved from. There's a few illustrations in the Old Testament we could look to. The first and most moving for me is the story of Hosea and Gomer. I won't go into all the specifics, of course. But who was Gomer's accuser as she stood there on the trading block? Who had the legal right to have her executed in that moment? Hosea. And he's the one who comes and buys her back and saves her. And isn't this exactly what God is showing Israel in this drama? Also, another example for the whole nation of Israel is King Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine yourself as a Jew living in exile and crying out to God, Lord, deliver us from our oppressor and the one who has taken us captive. But it's very clear from the text that Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon itself is raised up for the very purpose of being the rod of discipline against Israel for idolatry. God is our savior and he's the one we're being saved And you can hear this and feel this in the prayers of Daniel and Nehemiah as they cry out, they confess, we have sinned against you. That is why we're here. Deliver us, forgive us and deliver us. So we're saved in the most ultimate sense from God because of his wrath against our sin. Also, we are saved by God. This often goes without saying, right? In, in, in an act of salvation, if you save someone, there is a person being saved and a person doing the saving. 
So if we're to apply this to God's salvation, obviously God is the one who is saving, right? But it often goes without saying, and it's important that we say it. Because there are many things in our lives where the lines are blurred between the saved and the Savior. For example, if you go out and buy yourself a very nice health insurance policy or a home insurance policy, and then your house burns down or you get cancer, then who really saved you? Like Obviously, it was the insurance company that paid to cover the damages or to pay for the medical bills, but you paid the premiums. You acquired the saving mechanism to yourself. So in a sense, you're also Savior. Is that how it works with God? Often we can see it that way. God set up the system. He set up his insurance plan against hell. So wise up, clean up, get your act together, and get saved. Is that how he works? There is a sense in which we're supposed to avail ourselves of the offer of salvation. Peter commands, and it, I won't get into the grammar of it, but it's fascinating. At Pentecost, he commands the hearers, be saved. The ESV renders it, save yourselves from this wicked generation. But we don't literally save ourselves. God is the one who commands us to be saved. And this is why the word repent is so significant and why we need it in our lives. You can go back to the example of Hosea and Gomer again. What Hosea tells Gomer after he buys her back from her destitute situation is, you will be faithful to me for many days now. Jesus' first sermon, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel only works for those who abandon their rebellion and stop hating God from the heart and turn towards Him in brokenness. This is exactly what David is talking about in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of our God are a broken and contrite heart. But also this brokenness, this contrition is from God as well in a sense. God is the one who softens the hearts of His enemies. God gives the gift of repentance. God woos us to Himself. God, through the Spirit, convicts us of sin. God gives us brokenness. So what is our part to play? What is our part to play in this? Our part is to listen. To not harden our hearts. And respond in faith and repentance. That is our part to play. You don't save yourself. So listen, don't harden your hearts, respond in faith and repentance. But even at that point, maybe you know someone that they've done this over and over and over. They won't listen, they've hardened their hearts and they won't respond in belief and faith. Is there no hope for them? Is the problem of human unbelief and stubbornness so strong that God cannot work? No. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord can still reach them and melt their heart of stone. He can. Pray fervently and speak the gospel to them. 
This is why I've given you every sermon that we preach. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The power of God in the Holy Spirit is active as you speak the gospel truth to people. Don't lose hope. So we're saved from God, we're saved by God, and we're saved for God. Just think of some of the terminology relating to salvation in the Bible. Ransomed, bought, redeemed, transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It's very transactional language, if you think about it. Most of them are financial in the original languages. It would be helpful to contrast this with experiences in your life. Um, Hopefully not many of you have had to have a life-saving surgery or treatment. Um, I know many people have in this room. I haven't necessarily. But let's say you uh, realize that you've got a tumor or growth or something or a disease and you need a life-saving surgery. The doctor performs the surgery. You pay the doctor. Does the doctor own you? Like maybe you got to pay them a lot of money, right? But, but you don't have to be an indentured servant of the doctor, right? You don't necessarily, some people do, but you don't necessarily build a really deep and meaningful relationship with the doctor after they perform the surgery. Like my dad had to have several life-saving operations and surgeries, and I don't know if he keeps up with any of the doctors. And that's not like he's a mean and cold person. That's just how we usually operate, right? Because they were doing their job, we were paying them for it, and end of story. But when God saves us, a little bit different. God obviously owns us because he created us. God owns us because he created us and because of what it cost him to save us. But more than that, the main goal of salvation is that we would belong to him as his people forever. I'll just give you a few text to show this. This is from 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power when all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then from the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the whole point. The end goal of salvation isn't just that you would escape hell or or escape the terrors of the just punishment for sin that you deserve, but for all eternity, you would belong to God, that you would be his people, that he, he would be your God forever. So we're saved from God, by God, and for God. Also, number three, salvation is of or from God's grace. You didn't plan it. God did. I want to read to you, if you want to turn there, you can, Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. And regardless of how you theologically understand this passage, the point is praise. 
The point is for you to marvel at the fact that God has devised this plan to save you from before all time. Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." In him, we have obtained redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you avoid that passage because of theological disagreements, you're missing out on a dramatic and deep and life-saving foundation for your soul. God has planned this thing from before all time and brought you into it. You didn't plan it. God did. Of grace. You didn't do it. God did. It is accomplished by God, in Christ, through the Spirit, on the cross, and by His resurrection. God is the actor in all of it. All the verbs of salvation are of Him. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Romans 8. Also, you don't earn it. Jesus does. You don't earn salvation. That's kind of the point. Jesus earns it. You. It's based on His righteousness, not yours. You don't merit salvation. You don't live a life that God looks at and says, hmm, I'll save that person. It is always and only on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And all based on His love, not your loveliness. It's not based on your humility, but on Christ's. This is the heart of the gospel, is grace. This is the point in the, in the text I just read, that the praise of God's glorious grace would resound into all eternity. That's why salvation and the gospel itself even exists. From Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. If you, and this is where it really comes down into your mind and how you think about God. If you look at your life, if you have to be a good person in order for God to love you, then you're going to hell. 
End of story. It's not my phrase. I took that from someone. If you want to know from who, I can tell you afterwards. But it's very important for you to understand this. If you have to be a good person in order for God to love you, you are going to hell. It is only because Christ has been good for us and kept the law perfectly that any of us can be saved. And he loves us in Christ. That the basis, the foundation of God's love for you is his son. If you ever get to a place where you doubt or question the love of God for you, look at Christ. God has handed him, he he has worked in human history and all the plan of redemption to make Christ preeminent. How much does God love the Father? That's how much he loves you. If you're in him. God loves the Son and he has handed everything over to him. Number four, God is also the goal of salvation. God is the goal of salvation. You can see this uh, going back to verse five in Romans chapter one. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Salvation is ultimately about the glory of God. Specifically, God's glory is the goal of salvation. There are a couple of ways we can see that. But before we get to those ways, let me just say, if if you do not have a radically God-centered view of your life, a radically God glory, God's glory and seeking His glory as the center of your life, you're missing out on so, so much. I mean, isn't it this at the heart of the charge that Jesus gives His disciples? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about all the rest of the stuff that the world, the Gentiles, seek after. If you can get your mind and your heart focused on me and my glory and kind of forget about yourself and let yourself and all your desires and passions that you have that are outside of me, that don't please me, just recede into the background, then that is where you find peace, happiness, joy, fulfillment. So what does this mean for us? That God, God's glory is the goal of salvation. Are we just spectators? We're meant to be looking on the sidelines, watching God do all these great things and see his glory and really marvel and say, wow, that's amazing. No. We ourselves are the crowning achievement of God's glory. This answers the question, how is it that God has chosen to glorify himself? Look around. If you're in Christ, look at yourself. You And I are the way that God has chosen to ultimately and forever glorify himself. That's stunning. The implications of that are far reaching, brothers and sisters. God is committed to your good and your salvation and your joy and your holiness and your purity as much as because it's exactly the same thing for him, his glory. Here are three ways that you can see that. Salvation is being reconciled to the Father. He forgives sinners for falling short of His glory. 
So we're up close and personal with this contrast between His glory and our sin. And He bridges that gap and reconciles us to Himself. The matter at issue is that we have not regarded Him rightly. We have fallen short of His glory. Second, salvation is union with Christ. As He says in verse Six, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He gave us himself. He gave us all his glory. The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. We're to be united with Christ through faith. We see his glory up close and personal in the person of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians four. And not just you individually. All of us together are called the bride of Christ. The body of Christ. And individually we are priests. Serving under him. Made his younger brothers. And his friends. So we would know him and cherish him and glory in him forever. And third, salvation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He gives us His Holy Spirit so that we can continue forever. He gives us His Holy Spirit so that our desires and our will are so transformed that we will want to praise and glory in Christ forever. Have you ever thought about that or felt the need for that? As you grow older, I, I sense that meaningful things that I used to find meaningful as a child and as a young person are just kind of fading away. Like somehow Christmas is less magical, you know? You know what I'm saying? And Thanksgiving is kind of a chore sometimes, you know? And Valentine's is, who, who did I send a card to? Who, who sent a card to me? And it's, it's just everything becomes more and more jaded as you get older. And maybe some of you are the exception. Everything is just enchanted, and, and maybe that's fantastic for you, but I don't sense that in myself, and I'm just 32. So if you, if you see that happening in yourself, and I mean, it's partially natural, obviously, as you mature and as you understand what's really going on in the world and what's gone wrong in the world, you can't be cheerful and happy and skipping in lollipops all the time. And so I sense in myself a need that I, I, I need something bigger than myself to help me appreciate the things that are really good. I don't possess in myself the capacity of soul and the size of heart to appreciate God the way He deserves to be appreciated. I'm weak and limited and finite and mortal. So you need and I need the Holy Spirit indwelling us to broaden the size of our hearts so that we can See and enjoy God forever and glory in Him and see His glory. This is the heart of the prayer in John 17 is exactly that. I pray that those you have given me would be with me to see my glory that, you had, that I had with you before the foundation of the earth, before time began. Number five, salvation is uh, salvation because it is from God or of God. Therefore, it is then 
and now and forever. You can look back at the first several verses of of chapter 1 in Romans to see this. Because God is eternal, His plan for salvation is eternal. Because Jesus deserves praise forever. His worshipers must live forever because He is an eternal God. Do you understand that? That your eternal life is grounded in Jesus' eternal life. He's the one who has the indestructible life. So because you are his worshiper, he will not be the God of the dead, but of the living. You must be raised. It is promised beforehand. You can see that in chapter one. But also you can see this in the revelation to John that this is planned and initiated before the foundation of the world. Before creation, the Father, Son, and Spirit are conspiring together to make this plan of salvation. The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world in a mysterious way that boggles the mind. The Lamb's book of life is filled with names before the foundation of the world, again, in a way that we can't comprehend. But not just in the past, in the eternal recesses of time before time. For us personally, it is then, it is now, and it is forever. For us in the past, if you're in Christ, you are justified. This is a one-time event in your life when you first trust in Christ, abandon hope and everything else, and believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. This is when it starts. And he says, including you who are called... This is the entry point. Repentance and faith gives justification. Repent and believe in the gospel. This gives you right standing with God. It is also now, the word we give that is sanctification. Salvation is now in your life every day. God is working your salvation. You can see this where he says to bring about the obedience of faith. That doesn't just mean you believe in Him and then you've accomplished that. The obedience of faith is something that happens every day for you. To put it simply, and I hope this doesn't make any of you uncomfortable, God will never stop saving you until the day of adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Justification is usually what we call getting saved, but it's just the beginning. From our perspective, at least. Salvation is also forever. The implications or the results of salvation go on forever. We are called, as it says in verse 6, to belong to Jesus Christ. And He's never going to lose us. We call this glorification. All of these things we have been talking about, all the blessings of salvation, God guarantees to those who are in Christ to continue them forever. So that in the coming ages, the coming ages, the the images is this continual recess of ages, so that in the coming ages, he might show the riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. That, That essentially eternity isn't enough time for him to unfold for you all the riches of his kindness. And that forever part uh, can cause fear or boredom or just, I don't want that. Forever worshiping God like that. I mean, if we're honest, 
for some of us that can make us feel not pleasant. But there's this idea of rest, especially in the book of Hebrews. He is our rest. He is what we are made for. The reason we get bored when we are resting, quote unquote, is that we begin to find at the bottom that we're really not at peace. And rest or quiet begins to expose the fact that things are not well. And so we get bored because we don't want to hear that. Peace and joy and happiness of God. This is what we were made for. And our nature now, because of sin, is such that we can't comprehend how good it is. And how good it will be. Can you even begin to imagine how different your perspective will be? How different your desires will be? How different your tastes will be when the possibility of sin is removed? When the stain of sin is cleansed away forever? Death is eliminated completely and you are made perfectly whole. Can you even comprehend what you will be? We know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. After hearing this, the first and most appropriate response is obviously repentance and belief in the gospel, the real gospel. This is the way you receive all of these blessings. Also, even if you've been in Christ in your mind for a long time, the command from Peter, James, John, and Jesus himself and the author of Hebrews is to test yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. You wouldn't want to miss out on this because you've deceived yourself into thinking that this is yours when you know in your heart of hearts is telling you this isn't genuine. Test yourselves. Look to Christ. Forget what lies behind and look to Christ. And know that there, is, there are things that you are supposed to do. There is a kind of life you're supposed to live that accords with salvation today. You can be involved in the work of sanctification in your heart each and every day. It isn't just get forgiven and wait till Jesus comes back. Live every day in line with this great and glorious gospel. And if you're just now, or maybe the first time in a long time, that you've begun to see the glories of salvation and it excites you, don't squelch that. Don't put that out. Study. Feed that desire. Fan that into flame to marvel at what God has done in saving you. So I'm so excited about the adult Sunday school classes that are going on. Digging in deeper to understand what it is in beginning and what it is in implication for our lives for this great salvation. And if you want to read a short and easy book, it's sitting there on the back table, Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel? If you've been stirred to consider this is really grand and amazing, then don't waste that. And finally, pray that God would give you a real opportunity to share this real and full gospel with someone. Pray that you would have boldness and clarity to do so. And the best way that you can be prepared to offer a compelling invitation to repentance and faith for someone else is to look at Christ and marvel in all that he has done for you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your great salvation. And why such a Savior would give his life as a ransom for me, I cannot say. But oh, how to marvel in your grace. And such a great condescension and a great humility you gave yourself to save sinners. Give us boldness in this message, confidence in this message. Use this message to unite us and to drive us into deeper dependence on you, obedience to you, and trust in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.